Well, it's great to see many of you um, after the summer break. Uh, I know a number of us have been away on holiday, have had journeys of one sort or another. I hope those journeys that you experienced were safe and blessed. Um, This term, what we're doing at Holy Trinity, is we're looking at a journey. Uh, It's a journey taken by a group of people about three and a half thousand years in a country about 3,000 miles away. It's the journey of the Israelites through the desert. Uh, on the way to the promised land. But you'd be forgiven for asking the question, why are we looking at this? Why are we looking at a journey so long ago, so far away? Are there not more pressing concerns that might occupy our minds? What about the many worrying conflict situations in the world uh, with the rise of the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq? the latest events of which we heard overnight, the ongoing battles in the Ukraine, the apparently intractable situation in Gaza and Israel. Should we not be thinking about those? Or what about just our daily concerns, the need for us and others for food and shelter? Is that not more important? What about the various moral and ethical questions that face us in a a rapidly changing society? Assisted dying, the financial sector, marriage, they all need thinking about. What about how we deal with mistakes that we make in a very high-achieving culture like Claygate? Living with disappointment, with failure, is surely something we need to explore. What about simply working out where kind of God is in the midst of all the confusion? How can we speak of God in such a noisy and complex world? You you might have another set of questions you want to add to that list. Those are just five areas where I think we might be uh, pressing on us. That we might think, well, it's better to discuss those than a journey made by a people we've never met in a land we've never visited. Well, here's the thing. I think those things are things that we need to think about. They are book, there are, there are books, tweets, and the worldview series that we run to help us do all those things. But if there's one pressing need, I think we all have, it's this. And that is the need to know God better. To know God better. Because I don't think our problem is that we look at God too much and the world too little. I think our problem, and I speak for myself, is that we spend our time looking at all the data around the world around us. Data that comes to us via the TV, the internet, social media, our phones, data about the world at large and others' lives. And I think we spend so much time looking at that, that we reduce God to a kind of walk-on character in the play, rather than the author of the play itself, and the constructor of the theatre. And for the person who confesses Christian faith, like many of us here, that's a crying shame if we spend all our time looking at the world and not at God. Because it means that we try and follow Jesus Christ without having a growing understanding of who God is. And so our walk of faith can become a series of habits or religious practices but not based on a living encounter with the God we say we believe in. And a godless life and a godless faith have a very limited shelf life. But even if you're here this morning and you don't confess Christian faith, perhaps you're here and you're seeking, you're exploring, you're very welcome. 
But it's still a tragic shame to sideline God in our quest. Because I don't think you'll reach an understanding of what Christian faith is about until you've considered the God who's actually revealed in the Bible. Because you can appreciate the church, you can value friendship, you can enjoy the worship, but it won't make sense until God is more than a word on your lips or when a phrase that is used by people when they're shocked prefaced by the words, oh my. And the place to find more about who God is is the book that he calls to be written, which is the Bible. And that is why We are spending the term ahead looking at this second half of the chapter of the book of Exodus. Because I think the book of Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament, has more about who God is than any other book of the Old Testament. If you were in church this time last year when we looked at Exodus part one, I hope you'll agree that we discovered more about who God is and his intervention in the world. But if you weren't here last year... I hope you'll see what I mean by the end of today's talk. Because whatever your starting point is, I want us this morning to begin to expand our idea of who God is. So let me explain how we're going to do things this morning. We're going to look at this chapter, Exodus 15, that Debbie just read out for us. It's something of a kind of hinge chapter in the book of Exodus. For in it, Moses looks both backwards and forwards, backwards to the work of a great God that he describes, and forwards to the work of a faithful God that he hopes in. Uh, And those are our two points this morning. There's a little bit of a batting order that you'll see in your new sheet. Please have your Bibles open with me on page 72, Exodus chapter 15. And we're going to look at those two things. Looking back, a great God, verses 1 to 12. And secondly, looking forwards, a faithful God, verses 13 to 18. Okay. Right. Okay, so into verses 1 and 12. Let's just recap, shall we, on the story so far. Um, Exodus starts with the people of God in Egypt. Uh, They are the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And it's because of Joseph they ended up in Egypt. Now, they've been exploited by the Pharaoh and uh, having a dreadful time. They cry out. God raises up Moses to lead his people to freedom from captivity. There's a significant argy-bargy with Pharaoh. That's a a theological term. Uh, There are plagues aplenty. And finally, God saves his people through the Passover uh, when the angel of death passes over those houses with the red lamb's blood sprinkled on the lintel and the doorpost. And then through, um, they escape, Pharaoh lets them go. Uh, but further threat follows as Pharaoh changes his mind and he begins to chase the people of Israel uh, to the Red Sea. And so the, they are in this dreadful situation of being blocked in with the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh and his chariots on the other They are in serious doo-doo, but in a wonderful miracle, God parts the waters of the Red Sea. Moses and his people pass through to safety, only to watch the waters come back and Pharaoh and all his army perish. And so that's the scene. That's what's happened so far. So you've got to imagine the scene. The feet are still wet. There are still kind of chariots bobbing around in the water. The people, no doubt, pretty stunned. 
And this is what's just happened. And Moses sings this song of praise to God. Note that Moses doesn't turn to his people and say, wow, didn't we do well? No, he lifts his eyes and his vision to the God he believes has done all this. And in these first 12 verses, there are kind of outpouring of praise to God for both his power and supremacy. His power is there in those vivid descriptions of what he's done. He's hurled the horse and rider into the sea. He shattered the enemy. He threw down those who opposed him. These are deeply evocative phrases that describe the power of God that Moses has just seen. And then they lead to the language of God's supremacy. The language of God's supremacy over Pharaoh and the other threats. Moses says he is highly exalted. He's majestic in power. And those two themes of power and supremacy come together in verse 11, which I think is the summary verse of this first half of the chapter. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? I don't think, by the way, that Moses believes other gods exist. He's simply saying that none of the so-called gods worshipped in the ancient world come close to the God he has come to know and who has just done this wonderful miracle. But it's this summary I I want us to look at, because Moses describes God as majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, and working wonders. Well, they sound great words, don't they? But they kind of need unpacking, because they're kind of a bit of religious jargon, they might seem to us. What do they mean? Or what they describe, what Moses is trying to describe is a God who is completely other. A God who is completely beyond our grasp. Let's think about those words in turn. Majestic in holiness. I think that refers to God's purity and perfection. Moses is saying that God has a purity and perfection that is stunning. It makes him untouchable because he's so pure. Fallen as we are, we can no more reach out and touch God than we can reach out and touch the sun. Awesome in glory. Glory has been described as God's holiness on display. His perfection and his beauty put on show before others, rather like the crown jewels spread out on display. And we can no more look at God's glory than we can look directly at the sun. We have to look away. That is the glory of God. And he describes in third as a God who works wonders. A God who does things that we cannot explain, that force us to recognize how partial our knowledge is. That is the God that Moses believes in. A God who is completely other, beyond our reach, beyond our vision, beyond our comprehension. And here's the news. That God has not changed. He wasn't just like it then, you know, when Moses was around. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we see this picture of a great God. When when God walked the earth in Jesus, his greatness was on display. Let me give you two examples of this. Do you remember when Jesus stilled the waves 
and said to the waves, be still. What was Peter's reaction? Get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He realized that this was God's glory, his holiness, there in a man in front of him. He took a step back. Well, the transfiguration that we looked at last week, if you were here, when Jesus' glory was revealed at the top of the mountain, and kind of they were spellbound, the disciples, at seeing God's glory on display. You see, in Jesus, God doesn't become smaller. He's still that great God, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, and working wonders. But I think our view of God has become smaller. Culturally, I think we've lost the idea of a great God. We're so used to looking at ourselves that we make God in our own image. A bit better, a bit stronger, a bit smarter, but basically someone we can grasp. But the God worshipped by Moses that day, the God revealed in Exodus and throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, isn't like that. He's not like us. Those words again, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. He's beyond our reach, beyond our vision, beyond our comprehension. He's a great God. I speak for myself when I say this, that we badly need to reclaim the idea of the greatness of God. Someone said to me the other day that every generation needs to learn afresh the bigness of God, and I think that's right. We are badly mistaken if we think God is like a puppet there to dance to our tune, a fairy godmother there to wave his wands and make our dreams come true, an indulgent celestial grandparent keeping a watching but impotent eye on us. God is a God of ultimate holiness and purity, of dazzling beauty and supremacy, of unlimited power. And let me give you two very personal reasons why I think reclaiming the greatness of God is important. First of all, because it puts other threats in perspective. I've been struck recently by the threats that that face us, and not just of the international threats, though you, you kind of kind of watch the news this summer without just being almost overwhelmed by the, the terror that's, that's around in various parts of the world. But there are other threats too, much closer to home. There might be a, a boss who intimidates us, an illness that haunts us, a death that faces us. Those forces, I know from talking to you, those forces I know can appear so powerful. But none of those powerful forces is more powerful than God. Just like he stood over Pharaoh, he stands over them all. And if we hold on to him, those threats, they will never, ever take us away from him. Secondly, reclaiming the greatness of God helps put ourselves in perspective. I don't think it's too controversial to say that we live in an increasingly self-obsessed culture. Selfies, you know, where you take a picture of yourself on your phone. Selfies, they're just a symptom of a wider trend of me, me, me. 
You see it in ethical debates where personal autonomy, I want to be in control, is often the most important criteria for ethical decisions. It's what I want that matters. It's a deeply attractive trend to many in our culture. But I don't believe it's healthy for us or our communities because it does not reflect who we really are, which is people made by God to be in community. And remembering the greatness of God helps put ourselves in our place. We are not top of the tree. We are created beings, created by a great God, a holy, glory-shining, wonder-working God. So today in this term, will you join Moses in looking to and singing to our great God? Our verse for the year says, My eyes are fixed on you, O sovereign Lord. I I find reading scripture just always helps me expand my vision of who God is. Joining in worship with others helps me do that too. Being in creation helps me to do that. On holiday in rural France this summer, I saw the stars brighter than we ever do here. There seemed so many more of them. And my heart leapt in praise to the greatness of God who knows the stars by name. Perhaps there'll be a situation this week when you have the opportunity to recall the greatness of God that Moses praised. Looking back, a great God. Let's move on to the second half of the song, when Moses looks forward and looks forward to a faithful God. Because you see, the journey that the people of God are on hasn't finished. It's not the question they kind of just get to the safe side of the Red Sea, and that's it. They're not in the promised land, in Canaan, which God has promised them. That's many, many miles away. And so Moses, what he does, he looks to the path ahead and how God is going to act in the future. And the key thing I want you to look at is the beginning of verse 13. Those opening words. In your unfailing love, you will lead. In your unfailing love. The word translated here as unfailing love is a very special word in Hebrew. It's the word chesed. And it's a word that's used again and again in the Old Testament to describe the love God has for his people. And that love is not based on an emotion the way that we often use love. You know, I'm in love with somebody, or I love so-and-so. I love this food I'm eating. It's not based on an emotion. It's not that God is in love with his people. No, the word chesed is love based on a decision. It's God's will that he loves his people. His love is not determined by their behaviour. He doesn't love them because they're lovable. He loves them because he's resolved to do so. And his chesed, his love, is unchanging. It is faithful. It is permanent. It is covenant love. And I don't know about you, but I just find that really striking. That in the midst of this chapter, where there's so much language of power and supremacy and active verbs, we have this amazingly tender picture of his unfailing love. But that says something really important about God, how God is going to behave with his people. 
Because for all his power and greatness, for all his size and majesty, he'll behave with his people, the people he's brought out of Egypt, with unfailing love. Moses looks forward to the way in which God's love will result in his leading his people, guiding his people, protecting them, bringing them to a place of safety and ultimately into his own presence. And we're going to see that love, I think, that unfailing love of God pan out in the, in the journey before us this, church, this, ter- this term as a church. We're going to see God's love expressed in the way he provides for his people in physical and emotional ways. The way he gives them the law as a, as a pattern for human flourishing. The way he gives them a second chance when they reject him. The way he comes to dwell among his people when he gives them the, the tabernacle. We're going to see just uh, so many examples of God's faithful, unfailing love to a people who didn't deserve it. Perhaps today you're wondering if God really cares for you and your needs. Perhaps you cannot see how a clear moral framework is consistent with a God of love. Perhaps you're wondering if God can give you a second chance Perhaps you're wanting to know if God can really be with you in all that you're going through. If that's you, or someone close to you, this term, you're going to have the chance to see all of those questions answered through the chesed, the unfailing love of God. Because the really good news is this. The chesed of God... The unfailing love of God, it wasn't just for a season. You know, this season only. The chesed of God is his ongoing characteristic. It was God's chesed that led him to send Jesus into the world, the greatness of God in human form. It was God's chesed that led Jesus to die on a cross, to die for your sins and mine, that we might have a relationship with God of which Moses could have only dreamed. And it was God's chesed that continues to flow in us today when we louse up and fall in our walk with him. Because this love is not something we've deserved. It's not something we've asked for. God's love is not based on our lovability. Thank him. It's based on his commitment and covenant love for his people. I don't know what the journey is that God has for you. I do hope and pray it's not as exciting, that being a euphemism, for the journey that was about to be the one for the people of Israel through the promise, through the desert. But I do know this, that there is no journey where God cannot be present with his hechsed, his unfailing love. So I guess that's my... Question is, will you come with me and explore the unfailing love of God this term? If you've never known God's faithful love for you, come and explore it for the first time and and, and come and do Alpha as well when we have the chance to find out how his love really makes a difference to our lives. But perhaps you've just forgotten about God's love. Perhaps you've been so lost in questions that you've forgotten that God's love is there. For whatever reason, come and remember God's unfailing love. 
back to where we started. We have all these pressing questions, don't we, going in on our minds. We have, we have world strife, we have daily worries, moral confusion, coping with failure, finding God in the mix. Well, you know this? As we look at the story of Exodus, we're going to look at all of those. We're going to look at all of them. But we'll be doing it from the perspective of knowing God better. As he reveals himself to the people in the desert. And that's our aim. It's to know God better. Let me just sum it up by just giving you one final thought. You, you may have heard it said, you may have said it yourself, that the God of the Old Testament is very different to the God of the New Testament. You know, the one is angry and violent and the other is peaceful and loving. Well, I think such a view can only really be maintained if you've neither read the Old Testament properly nor the New Testament properly. But Because as we've seen today, yes, the greatness of God is there and his holiness, his glory and power, but that was not just a one-off. That stayed there with Jesus. Jesus was a great God walking the earth. Greatness was not just a whole te- Old Testament idea. It's the God of the Bible. But the worship, God worshipped by Moses was not simply a great God of power and might. As we've seen, he's also a God of love. Of unfailing love. Of chesed who would stick with his people and lead them on the journey before them. And it was that same love that would lead Jesus to the cross and will welcome all who trust in him to a place where God dwells and reigns forever. So I wonder, which one do we need to see most this morning? Do we need to see perhaps the greatness of God? Perhaps because of threats from outside or simply a sense of frustration or dissatisfaction of looking at yourself, you need to lift your eyes to the God who is completely other to the God who is holy, majestic, and who can work wonders. Beyond our grasp, but within our trust. Beyond our vision, but within our hearts. Beyond our comprehension, but within our lives. Perhaps you need to see the greatness of God afresh this morning. Or perhaps you need to see the faithfulness of God in his hesed, in his unfailing love. Perhaps you feel small and forgotten, so unsure of whether God notices you or loves you. Perhaps you need to know that God loves you and that in Christ he is with you and not against you. Of course, the reality is that we need both. Just as Moses recalled the greatness of God and the faithfulness of God, so we are too as well. He's not one or the other. Yes, he's completely other in his greatness. And yet he's completely connected in his love. And that is the God I pray that we will know more fully, worship more wholeheartedly, love more completely, and serve more faithfully in the time to come.